Well, good morning, and my name is John, one of the pastors here. Glad to see you all as we worship uh, on this beautiful Sunday. I don't know about you, but I was enjoying being out to see our mountains and uh, <laughs> felt uplifted just uh, and reminded of their beauty and glory. Um, I'd encourage you to open to our scripture passage today. Uh, we are looking at Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. Uh, Exodus 20, 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us again today, as you spoke to your people so long ago. We thank you that your presence is here with us, and we pray that through the preaching and the speaking of your word, that you would make us new in Christ, form us according to your image. Pray that you would do that, only you can. So Father, please work here. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, imagine with me that you just took some fall family pictures, and after waiting 48 hours, you get the email with the link to check out the edited photos. And so you click it, open the gallery, and what is the first thing that you look at? Oh, what a wonderful background in those photos. Look at the composition. That photographer did such a good job. Our outfits, they matched so well. You eventually might notice those things, but my guess is the very first thing you look at is you right? How do I look? Do I always smile kind of weird like that? Do I always tilt my face like that? Why did I have my hand in that awkward way? We all have this kind of love-hate relationship with pictures of ourselves. It's probably mostly hate, except for those few photos that we feel actually capture uh, ourselves, that we think make us look good. But most of the time, we feel like photos fall flat, right? They distort things. They don't capture who we are. They minimize our good features and exaggerate our bad ones. Or imagine with me, you've just returned from a wonderful vacation to Hawaii where you've been hiking all these craggy peaks and walked through rainforests and discovered a few secret waterfalls and you documented it all with pictures. And then you get back and you're showing your friends, telling them about your vacation to Hawaii and you pull out your phone and say, look at this. But what's your reaction when you look at the picture of those things that you took? Well, usually it's and it looks so much better in person. The picture doesn't do it justice. You've just got to go there and see for yourself. Pictures represent reality, but they don't contain all of it. They always miss something. They tone down the wonder. They, they always have a frame that leaves certain things out. And I think that's a helpful way to think about this second commandment, that God doesn't want us making images of himself because he wants us to worship him as he is. A God without frames, without borders, unbounded. Not who we might think he is, not a photoshopped version of him, not a whittled down version, but him in his glory and his wonder. Something that any image will always fail to capture. We're working our way through the second part of our series through the book of Exodus, and the second part is called The Gift of the Law. 
And we've said that the law is kind of like the blueprints for what God's kingdom is supposed to look like. And what we see here is that one of the marks of God's kingdom community is that God is worshipped as he is. He's not worshipped like people want him to be. He's not a distorted God, but he's worshipped as God. And we can worship him as he is because God is with his people. We don't need images because he has come to us. And that's what I want you to remember this morning. We don't need images because God is actually with us. We don't need images because God is actually with us. We're going to look at this three ways. First, idol worship, and then worshiping God like an idol, and then God is with us. Our passage begins, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. And the broadest reading of this commandment would prohibit then the work, it would basically put artists and sculptors out of business, right? You can't make any sort of image. But then when we get to verse 5, it seems that it narrows it and says, well, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. The command gets narrowed a little bit to focusing on the worship of images. Now, for in the English language, the word image can mean a bunch of different things. And sometimes we can then interpret the second commandment that way. But in the Hebrew, uh, this word almost always refers to carvings or other objects sculpted or created for worship. So Deuteronomy 29, Moses is speaking to the Israelites. You yourselves know how we lived in Egypt and how we passed through the countries on the way here. You saw among them their detestable images, same word, and idols of wood and stone, silver and gold. Or in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, probably some of you know this story. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image, same word, of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and he set it up. So it's hard to say, I think, that this command prohibits the creation of any kind of image. For instance... When God gave instructions for the Ark of the Covenant, he said, make two cherubim from hammered gold and then place them on the ends of the atonement cover and mold the cherubim on each end of the atonement cover, making it all from one piece of gold and the cherubim will face each other and look down on that cover above the Ark. So here God is actually commanding them to make what we would call images that actually sit in the holiest space of the tabernacle. We see also that God gifted sculptors and artists, Exodus 31, verse 1. Then the Lord said, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, bronze, and to cut and set stones to work in wood, and to engage in, engage in all kinds of crafts. Right? What are these crafts? Sculpting, molding things, making things. The temple itself was furnished with what we would say are images. First Kings 6.29. On the walls all around the temple, both in the inner and outer rooms, the craftsmen carved cherubim, palm trees, open flowers. Now, the thing, though, is the Hebrew word for image, like we have in the second commandment, doesn't actually appear in any of these descriptions that I just said, which helps confirm that the word that is translated as images doesn't mean they have the same broad meaning that we have, but is more narrow, and that it refers to often something that was created to be worshipped, something that is modeled after a god, we could say. And so it seems that this command isn't just giving a blanket prohibition of creating 
any type of images or even having certain types of images in the worship space. But it is prohibiting creating objects that will be worshipped. Now this becomes all the more clear when we understand some of the historical context of how the ancient people worshipped. So images were like the bread and butter of ancient worship. When Moses gave the instructions for coming out of the promised land later on in Exodus, he says, the images of their gods you are to burn in the fire. Do not covet the silver and gold on them and do not take it for yourselves or you will be ensnared by it. Back then, images and idols were as common as iPhones. And people believed that there weren't kind of universal gods, but gods were often connected to specific regions. So let's say your army just took over a new piece of land in the Middle East. And you would often then consult with the local religious leaders of that area and ask them, well, who are the gods here? And, you know, what are their dietary restrictions? What do they like to eat? Because you wanted to then serve those local gods who would then be obligated to bless you and welcome you as kind of the new owners of that land. Gods were also often tied back then to specific natural phenomena. If you remember in school, learning about all the Greek gods, we see the same thing there. Right? Poseidon, who is the god of the storm and the sea, Athena, the goddess of wisdom, and so on. In fact, one of the things that made the Israelites so unique and actually seen as kind of out of touch and, and maybe even backwards by the rest of their culture was that they insisted there's actually just one God, which for everyone else was completely foolish. No, there's hundreds and thousands and thousands of gods to be worshipped. And the primary way that people connected with their gods was through an idol, a carving, a statue. And let's say you just inherited some new farmland and you wanted to ensure that you're going to have a good harvest this fall. So you would go and take some of your money and pay someone to make an idol, often out of wood, maybe overlay it with gold. If you're really rich, it would be solid gold or some sort of fine metal. And then you'd set it on your fence post, right, to help that, so that God would be present in your farmland and help the crops. Idols were these kind of mystical objects that were believed that when they were formed, part of that deity that they were connected to actually resided there in the idol. That the, the, the God was actually present in some small way in that idol. And so you could have God's presence in a way with you through the idol. And idol worship was as simple as this reciprocal relationship of, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That was the extent of relationships with the gods back then. Right? So you would offer a sacrifice to the idol. Right? Maybe they like dates, so you give some dates right in front of that idol. And now that offering, by that offering, the god is now obligated to reciprocate by using some of his or her powers to help you out. We actually see a great example of this in Aladdin. Right? We see the same idea here where you all know the story. When you rub, make an offering to the lamp, which is this idol, the god that is connected in it comes out, Robin Williams, <laughs> and is now obligated to grant your three wishes. Right? That is the, ancient, the worship of the ancient people in that region. That's how they thought of worship. And it, to, it made idol worship very easy. Right? No one thought about having a personal relationship with your God. In fact, taking care of your idols was as easy as taking care of your houseplants. Right? You finish watering all your plants, and then you drop a few pomegranates in front of the idol, and your worship requirement is done for the day. And now that God is obligated to bless you. And the gods that are connected to these idols, they didn't care about the heart of the worshiper. All that they cared about was they got fed, right? They got their offerings. 
They didn't care if there were other idols in the house. They didn't care about your behavior three seconds after you dropped the, made the offering right in front of the idol. As long as you gave regular offerings to that God, he was happy and he would be obligated to help you. Idol worship was convenient. Little sacrifice was required. As long as you had the resources, you could make as many idols as you wanted. You could have a set of idols in your home, and then instead of lugging all those idols to your second home when you're taking a vacation, you just make a new set of idols in your second home so that they can be there and protect you when you're in that other area. This is the cultural air that the Israelites live in. And so you see how radical this command would have been. God is upending everything about how the Israelites and that culture thought about worship. It's through idols, it's impersonal, it's this tit-for-tat relationship, and here God says, you can't make idols, you can't make an image even of me. And so this brings us to our second point, worshiping God like an idol. There's kind of two things that many people see that this man prohibits. Charles Hodge puts it this way, idolatry consists not only in the worship of false gods, right, so bringing some other gods into the relationship, but also in the worship of the true God by images, which is essentially worshiping Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, like you would other people worship all these other gods. Now, we covered the first aspect, the worship of false gods, I think, pretty well in the first commandment last week. So what I want to focus on is the second aspect of this command, not worshiping God by images. In other words, you can't worship the true God like everyone else worships their gods, in particular, like they did in the ancient world. So in Deuteronomy 4.15, Moses warns the Israelites, You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Moses is actually reminding them of the, the situation we're, we're in right now in Exodus, right? Remember, God is speaking these words. And then he continues, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape. He's saying, when you were there at the base of Sinai, you didn't see a picture of God. How did you experience God? You heard his voice. And this sets up an important theme, that the way, one of the ways in which God has chosen to reveal himself is through words, not images. That you are not to make an image of God and say, this is how I learn of God. That God actually talks. You can hear him. He doesn't just sit there up on the mantle with all your other gods. This is an important point. Why do we not need these images of God? Because God is actually present with his people and he talks to them. That's way better than having something on your mantle just looking down at you. God is personal with his people. He has a personal relationship with them. But the Israelites are always going to be tempted to say, oh yeah, we worship our God, but, but they slowly start worshiping their God like everyone else worships their gods. And God says, no, you cannot do that. Well, why? Well, because, like that picture of yourself that distorts you, any attempt to capture who God is, is in an image will, will fail to capture his essence, who he really is. It will instead whittle him down into an idol, something you can carry around, something that you can manage, something that's no longer bigger than you and transcends you, but something that you can actually pick up and move wherever you want to. Listen to Isaiah 40, verse 18. To whom can you compare God? 
What image can you find to resemble him? Can he be compared to an idol formed in a mold overlaid with gold and decorated with silver chains? In the same way, just like that picture of those amazing mountains, it never captures their majesty, right? The picture is always framed. It has borders. It loses some of the wonder of actually being there and experiencing it. When you try to capture God in an image, you give him boundaries, you give him borders, you, you lose some of the wavelengths of who he is. And the, but the thing is, that image will start to inform your idea of who God is more than God himself. Something about the human heart, we're, we're tied to want to worship the picture sometimes more than the actual person. And idols also reflect the person that made them. Right? You can have five different artists, set them all down and say, hey, paint a picture of the Wasatch front here. And at the end of that, all five pictures will look different. They all started with the same material, but the, the personality and the style of the artist comes through in their brush. And in the same way, any time you make an image of God... You don't have an image of God as he is. You have God through an Instagram filter. You have God through the brush of an artist with their little florals or touches. And craftsmen tend to make a God that look a bit like you want God to look like. You like God to look like. Instead of letting God be God and letting him be with his people unfiltered. And this is where I think the command applies to us today. Because I don't think any of us are busy paying craftsmen on the side to build idols to put in our mantles above our fireplace. But we still make images of God. They're just kind of 21st century images. We live in this age of individuality, right, where everyone wants to choose their own path. And consumerism, where, well, if you don't like this religion, go try this one. Or you don't like this church, try this one. And at the center of that is really ourselves that actually one of the ways we make idols all the, uh, all so often is that when we have a picture or a kind of our preferences of what kind of God we want to worship, you're creating... The, the, the one thing about this command is it isn't just about physical carvings, but even in the ways that you think and Im imagine God in your head can be a violation of this command. You're creating this mental idea of who God is, but you're not letting God be God, but kind of subtly airbrushing God to match your own preferences. J.I. Packer has this helpful comment where he says, how often do we hear people say, well, I like to think of God as blank, whatever. Or I don't like to think of God as a judge, but as a loving father. Or I don't want to think of God who's a consuming fire, but a God who is love. What you're doing there is actually the work of an idle craftsman. You are cutting off the pieces of God that you don't like and whittling down God into an image that fits your own desires. You're worshiping God as you want him to be, not as he has revealed himself to be. And one of the best ways to, to test if you're doing this or not is, is to ask yourself, when God's word tells me something that I don't like, what do I do that challenges me? Do I cut those parts out of my image of God? Get rid of that, I don't like that. Or do I say, I need to let God be God, and instead of changing God, maybe I'm the one that needs to change. We can make an idol out of God in so many ways. We, do this, we can do this in our worship, right? It, it can be very tempting to make your worship more exciting. We could do that here. We could turn on the DJ mode on our stage lights. 
Uh, we could play snazzy videos. We could do all kinds of other things to make our service more entertaining, more like a concert, more appealing to, to the masses. And yet, remember those words from Deuteronomy 4. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. This is why Reformed worship, rightly, I think, tries to only have in worship what God tells us to have in worship. And it centers around his word. Because it is so easy, out of what would be good desires, to make things more relevant or more entertaining or more attractive, to then incorporate other things into worship. But as soon as the, what God has revealed himself, his word, is no longer the main attraction, you've actually pushed an idol in. And that is what people are worshiping, a certain style or form of worship. If you say that, well, I need this type of worship experience to really experience God, and that thing isn't his word, we could very easily be worshiping an idol. Because we believe the most powerful thing in changing you, of actually transforming you into the image of Christ, isn't how entertaining worship may be, but it is the power of God in that worship that actually his word works to make you new in Christ. But for many of us here, now let's be honest, you didn't come here because you wanted to rock out to Jesus. Right? We're Presbyterian. We're about as boring as it gets most of the time when it comes to worship. But we shouldn't then think that that doesn't mean we can bring idols into our worship. J. Dalma writes, it's easy for us to make images out of other parts of worship. No longer are the preaching of the word and faith the decisive elements of worship, but the old habitual forms and sounds that make people feel secure. What he's getting at, he's, he's saying, when you feel like you're unable to worship because, man, I just don't like these new songs, I like the old ones. Or I don't like the old songs, I like the new ones. Or maybe it's a different form of the Lord's Prayer that you're used to, or the liturgy looks a little bit different. It is so easy to prop those preferences up, those familiar things, until you've made an idol out of them. And actually what you are worshiping is the liturgy more than God. Let's look at one more area where we can make an idol out of God. Jonathan Edwards, in one of his sermons, he writes, Many have done exceedingly magnificent things in their gifts for charity. Many have done great things from fear of hell, hoping thereby to appease God and make atonement for their sins. And many have done great things from pride and from a desire of reputation and honor among men. He's saying the basic way that so many of us tend to relate to God is not actually because we love God for who he is, but because we're trying to appease something in ourselves. So some of you, you have a relationship with God that is wearing you out because you're trying to do so many things to get God to like you. Like, I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to live my life to a higher standard. I'm not going to do all these things that other people do. Maybe you're always beating yourself up because in your failures, you, you say, well, I know God can't like this, so I'm going to really hate myself, and then maybe God will, will start liking me more. Other of us, though, you do all kinds of great and selfless things, sacrificial things, generous things, giving to others, serving others. But the real reason that you do it is not because you love God, but because of the pride in your heart and you love when other people see your good deeds. 
and see all the good things that you do. And you might not even tell it to anybody, but in your heart, you love that feeling. And what is so tough is both types of these people tend to do really well in church. Because they look, everyone else sees them, wow, they're so selfish, selfless, they're so pious, they're so dedicated, they have such high standards, they're so serving. But Edwards points out, if that's what your relationship to God is like, that your relationship is really motivated by trying to do these things for God because you think it'll make him like you more, you're actually worshiping an idol, not the real God. Because if deep down you think God needs something from you, we all kind of get the sense, well, God doesn't need much, but maybe he likes my, my good deeds or my effort. Maybe it'll make him feel happy. The God of the Bible is completely satisfied without you. He doesn't need anything from you. Your things that you do to help him don't really help him. He could do it just as well without you. And yet we think God works that way because that's how we work. Someone is nice to us, more we're likely to reciprocate that to them. And so guess what? Trying really hard to change how God feels about you through your actions, through how much you work, through how much you serve, through how much you give, whatever it might be, that God sees all of those actions and he sees right through it to a selfish heart that is motivating all of that. That you're not doing these things from love, you're doing them because of the good feelings you get from it, or the status you get from it. And that is idol worship 101. I do these things for you, and then God will do these things for me. And this brings us then to our third point. God is with us. I want us to wrap up by looking at the second half of verse 5 and 6. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. The first thing we all want to know when you read this is like, What's the deal with punishing the kids for the sins of the parents? Again, we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So if we go to Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, it says, Parents must not be put to death for the sins of their children, nor children for the sins of their parents. Those deserving to die must be put to death for their own crimes. So it doesn't seem here that God is saying that it's okay to punish the kids for the parents' sins. Instead, I think what it's getting at is that the sins of parents often have generational effects. And so many of you know that. So many of you know that because you're still living with some of the scars of your parents' sins. And whether it was a nasty divorce, or drug or alcohol abuse, physical or verbal abuse, abandonment, the sins of parents run downhill into the lives of their kids and grandkids, and sometimes even beyond that, in more ways than we realize. The mistakes that you make and your weaknesses, they leave a legacy. But we can't miss them in the second half. But God also shows love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. You can't miss that the love, the weight of God's love, vastly tips the scales in, in terms of the weight of sin. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. But what it requires is someone to keep his commandments. It says it must be someone that needs to do everything out of love instead of, what do I get out of it? 
someone who looks at the Ten Commandments and wants to do these things out of a pure heart versus someone who wants to do them to check all the boxes and get some love back from God. And Jesus was the only one who actually did that. Friends, do you want to end the cycle of pain and hurt and addictions that runs down your family tree? The only way to do that is to bring it all to the cross and to set your sin and your failure on Jesus, where the only true lawkeeper hung so that we could reap the rewards of his obedience. He was the only one in all history who actually loved God for who he is and kept his commands with a pure heart. And guess what? Now he is building a new family tree out of faith. When you look to Jesus, you are born again into that new family tree where the sins of your parents, the sins of you, are not passed down, but now his righteousness is passed down for a thousand generations. And said so the Hebrew word for image is almost always used to describe these idols for worship. There's a couple of exceptions, though, and one of them is in Genesis 1.27. So God created mankind in his own image. Same word. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. There's one sense in which God doesn't allow any images in his creation to be made because he's already created them. It's humanity. But because of sin, that image of God would be corrupted, but he would promise to bring it back again. Colossians 1.15 Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Friends, the beauty of what this command is getting at is that God has come and come with us. That's who Christ is. Christ is here with us. The image of the invisible God is with you through his Holy Spirit. And Thomas Watson wrote, Why would you worship the image of the king if the king is present? Friends, God is with us. Let's worship him. Why would you snuggle with that picture of the teddy bear when you actually have the teddy bear right next to you? God is with us. And Christians, if you have faith in Christ today, the life of Christ, the very image of God, is present in you. And so why is it then that we are so busy worshiping cheap images when the real thing is right next to you? I mean, how foolish would it be for someone to never leave their house for their entire life but think, oh, I've already seen the world through the images I got on Google Maps. I don't need to go there. And how foolish is it for us to worship these low-resolution images of God when the king of creation is present with us right now? And he is here. And as you worship him, you are beholding his glory and being transformed by his power, his life in you, so that, guess what? As you worship the image of God in Christ, you are becoming more and more the image of God in you and shining with his beauty in your life. Colossians 3, verse 10. Friends, so put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. 
In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Friends, don't settle for an image when you have the real thing. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your love would compel us and control us, that we would not long to, to see you, but to realize that you are here. Your spirit is sealed to us. The very life of Christ is united inseparably to every one of us who believes the power of God is in us. And Father, one day we will see you face to face, and we long for that. But Father, help us not to miss that the very reality and life of heaven is in us now. And to be satisfied with that power and to realize how powerful that is to change us more and more into your image. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Each week we have a time of confession. So again, that time isn't a time to kind of rattle off all the bad things you did to try to you know, get right with God again. But it's actually that time when you can be honest with God, knowing that he will not let you go. And you can confess all those places where you've been worshiping an image, worshiping an idol, worshiping something else, and ask for God to remind you of his presence in you. So I'm going to read this prayer of confession and then give you a few moments to silently pray. Lord, you have called us to worship you. We get gladly gather as we praise you, though, our own inadequacy reminds us of how we have, a broken, we have broken our relationship with you. Because we have sinned against you, even our worship fails to be what it could. We often treat it as a show. We simply go through motions, failing to recognize that you want to engage us deeply. Renew us, we pray, according to your steadfast love. Remind us of your covenant faithfulness. And have mercy on us in the name of Jesus Christ. And Father, hear our prayers now.